listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program, and the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, has gone on a bit of an unscheduled public relations offensive. And his first stop, as always, is here on this radio station, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. The Premier calling Kelly Cotrera to talk about the fact that he has now cancelled his cell phone. No more will you be able to call up Doug and say, dude, what's with the fact that I can't get a beer at 2 a.m. with a drive-thru? Why can't I have that? Well, now the Premier says that he just has to cancel it. It has been overrun by special interest groups. Special interest groups are to blame. Here is Doug Ford talking about why he has had had to do this. A real nasty, nasty comments, and I got one. I got quite a few of them saying, "I hope you die with cancer, like your brother did." You know, I'm coming after your family, and it, and, it, and it was ringing literally. I, I'm not even in, I'm not even close to exaggerating here. It's probably four to five hundred calls a day, which just, it just went off nonstop. Sean Jeffords is a legislative reporter at Queen's Park for the Canadian Press. He broke this story, and he joins me on the line. Hi, Sean. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? I'm good. What do you make of that messaging from the Premier? Well, it's, uh, I guess in some respects, it's a way for him to uh, move a little bit around the, the cancellation of this, which he'd been touting as a real direct line for people to reach him um, since, frankly, before he was Premier. Um, so I think it's, it's pretty handy for him to be able to now say, well, you've, you've spoiled this, the special interest groups have spoiled this for the regular people of Ontario who I was communicating with. What What is special interest groups code for, Sean? Well, that's a great question, too. I'm, you know, I did ask the Premier's uh, office to say, you know, who, just who these folks are. Um, and they didn't really provide names. They just said that, well, if you look online, you'll see that uh, some people, unions, um, have used this to uh, try to get their members or other people in touch with me to effectively, uh, you know, inundate me with their messages about, you know, opposed to a cut or, you know, a policy. Here is the Premier talking about the fact that, hey, don't worry, you can still get in touch with me. The, the good news is uh, they can call my office uh, anytime, and I will give this publicly. This is public information is uh, 416-325-2228. And uh, if you need help, you need me to come by, just uh, leave your address and that. You need me to come by. Yeah, I, that, so that's the main line for uh, the, the Premier's office now. You know, his office is, has really been quick to say, hey, you can still reach the Premier. You can, you can phone uh, the Premier's office, you know, you can use his email, um, and you can reach him that way. But it's, I think it's not exactly the same thing as, you know, this very populist appeal that he had using the, the cell phone number, his personal cell, which he's had for years, which, you know, reporters in and around Queen's Park, City Hall in Toronto have also had. I mean, that was his number. Yeah, I, I mean, you would call him and you would get him. That's right. I mean, it, it was not hard to do. And he would call you back. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he certainly would. Um, and this whole thing about calling his office to get services, 
uh, takes me back to when the Premier called my program and made this guarantee. If anyone needs support uh, on legal aid, feel free to call my office. You will, I will guarantee you that you will have legal aid. This is to help people, and this is to help So that was the Premier on my program uh, a couple of months back, Sean, and that sort of reverberated through Queen's Park, the sort of idea of this guarantee. And so yet, yet nothing has really changed here. It, the, you know, this whole uh, line of communications really dates back to uh, the Premier's brother, late Mayor Rob Ford, who really prided himself on, you know, handing out his personal phone number, getting calls at home, returning calls from home um, at, you know, all hours to, you know, do the very basic stuff for, for people who lived in the city, you know. Are they having problems with uh, city services, trash pickup, potholes on their street? But I think the question really is, does the same sort of principle apply to a premier of a province with 14 million people. And, you know, when I was writing the story yesterday, talking with people, they, you know, I talked to former cabinet minister John Malloy. He said, honestly, it raises questions of ethics and fairness. You know, can you cut the line to get access to provincial services by calling the premier, who is pretty powerful? And when he picks up the phone, people move, they act, they listen. Um, so it's, it really is a question of whether that's a feasible thing. I want to play just quickly a bit of audio here. This is the uh, Premier basically handing out his cell phone number when he was touring a flood-ravaged area in Ottawa. I think we're just trying to get that. Yeah, it's the next one. To help people, and I guess the special interest, they're they're hurting. No, this is actually, this is the the Premier. We'll just stop that there for a second. Apparently we don't have that. We'll work on that. But listen, here, here is the Premier now. We'll take this one again. My apologies here. We're going to take this one again of the Premier talking about special interests, because I want to circle back to this code about who he's blaming for this. This is to help people, and I guess the special interests think they're, they're hurting me. They aren't hurting me. They're hurting the people that that uh, might otherwise not be able to get a hold of their local MPP. And, and I get calls from right across Ontario. Matter of fact, it was right across Canada and, and some in the U.S. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm there to help people. That, that's the reason the line's there. I, here we have this audio now. We'll play it for you again if we can. This is him give, actually doing what we're talking about here. So anybody wants this? No, his cell number is 416-805-2156. Just text me is the quickest way, guys. You think that there's an ethical problem with that, Sean? That's the, that's the assertion from others? You know, the I think yeah, the suggestion is that um, he's he's been using this in a way that you know maybe is not actually beneficial to people, and it's a political tool. And um, that's what the opposition parties were saying yesterday that it was always a gimmick, part of his political shtick, um, and that uh, it actually is not it, just on the broad scale. The demand for provincial services that you know, like legal aid, for instance, you know, if you need a lawyer, like there's a reason why there there are government agencies that are set up to do these things because the demand for these services is so high. And to have one person, the premier of the province, um, you know, effectively saying, hey, you call me and I'll get you this help, um, you know, it, it, may, it may not be possible to actually get through to the premier, um, as we've seen now with this line. So, you know, it, 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 I guess it raises questions of whether you could actually deliver on that promise. Here's the, the, the next thing I want to kind of pivot to here, and that is the somewhat shoot-from-the-lip response that the Premier does here. This feels, again, 
like his office is not controlling the fact that he's now making calls to radio stations. And, I mean, do you think that that is, uh, indicates a, sort of a lack of control at the center? Well, I mean, that's a great question, too. I, I, I wonder if, um, you know, the premier, we, we certainly didn't receive any word from his office today that he was going to be doing a round of uh, media interviews. We don't receive itineraries from the premier as we do, have done from or received from pre- previous premiers. You know, that was normal practice. This premier is, is really not in the habit of doing that. So when he pops up on um, radio stations, you know, you're pretty surprised. And, you know, I guess it does also lead to questions about whether um, his staff are aware of of these issues. We don't know that for certain. You know, we don't know one way or the other, I guess. Sean Jeffords is the legislative reporter at Queen's Park for the Canadian Press and broke the story about Doug Ford canceling his cell phone. Oh, wait a minute. What is that? Oh, it's my cell phone. Oh, it's ringing again. All right. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you being with me. Thanks, Alan. So that's that. You used to call me on my cell phone. You don't get to call Dofo no more. No more, Dofo. I want my chips, and I want them with the dip. Bring me the chips. Bring me the chips with the dip. And when we come back, we are going to be talking to Ontario Minister John Yakabuski, who is going to talk about the fact that Ontario has now appointed a flood czar, somebody to look into the flooding. And that's interesting, because earlier this year, the progressive conservative government cut Conservation Authority funding for flood management by 50%. What's up with that? Welcome back. Ontario has now appointed a special advisor on flooding to recommend ways that the province can reduce the impacts of flooding and help communities deal with them. Doug McNeil is a former Manitoba Deputy Minister of Infrastructure and Transportation. He's going to be paid $60,000 and will be expected to deliver a report and recommendations in the fall. Basically, what he's going to do is he's going to assess the roles of governments and agencies involved in flood management, recommend ways to help the province better prepare. But all of this follows a move in April by the Ford government to cut Conservation Authority's flood management programs by half. The programs are responsible for flood warnings, flood response, floodplain management. Conservation Ontario, which represents the province's 36 conservation authorities, said the impacts of the cuts will be felt immediately, particularly in smaller and more rural areas. And quote here is cutting natural hazards, cutting natural hazards funding, pardon me, is particularly problematic right now in light of the fact that, like everywhere else, Ontario is experiencing stronger and more frequent flood events as a result of climate change impacts. That is a quote from General Manager Kim Gavine of Conservation Ontario, responding to the fact that the Ontario government cut funding for these things by 50%. To talk about why now we are going to pay for a report about all of this, I am joined by the minister in charge, the Minister of Natural Resources, John Yakubuski. Hello, Minister. Good afternoon, Alan. How are you doing? I'm fine. You cut funding, and now you're going to study it. How does that make sense? 
we cut funding to f- conservation authorities uh, to have them focus on their core mandate, which is what we expect them to do. Uh, the province is a very small portion of the funding that conservation authorities receive. What we're doing here is appointing a special advisor to look at the flood events of 2019, which were far out of uh, what we would normally experience on any given spring. Critics will say that the conservation authority funding to be able to respond to this thing is vital to be able to assess the future threats and to be prepared for something like 2019, which may happen again in 2020. And we expect they are prepared to do that. And we have our own surface water water monitoring center in Peterborough, which monitors water levels across the province on a 24-hour basis. So we have uh, a response to flood uh, once they're here, uh, as anyone will tell you, becomes a much bigger, a uh, bigger issue than uh, than forecasting. It is all hands on deck, as it was this spring. So what we're trying to do is to trying to determine what did happen, uh, if there's anything we could be doing differently, and uh, how we might be better prepared uh, in the future. So when we're responding to uh, the people from meetings that we've had, plus the engagement sessions that we held uh, in. Uh, Huntsville, Pembroke, and Ottawa to determine uh, what our next steps would be. Uh, And when we had public meetings, which I had four in my riding and meetings in Ottawa as well, um, the public are asking for an independent review. So our first step is to uh, appoint our own special advisor, Mr. Doug McNeil, from Manitoba. And our next step, which we initiated last week by writing to the uh, my counterparts at the federal level and as well as the province of Quebec asking for an independent review of the events on the Ottawa River. Asking for an independent review suggests that you believe there was some kind of mismanagement of the river system. Uh, no. What it does says it says we're responding to the requests from the public as well as municipalities that uh, um, form the borders of the, of the Ottawa. Uh, asking for an independent review other than from Ontario Power Generation or the Ottawa River uh, Regulation uh, Board. Any response from the feds or Quebec yet? I have not received a response as of yet. Uh, We're hoping we do receive a positive response because we need their cooperation to to fully deal with the um, operations of the Ottawa because it comes under the auspices of three levels of, not three levels, but two levels of government, but... um, two different provinces as well. Is that part of the complaints that you heard from the public, that it seems to be so fractured in terms of management that there's just nowhere to go to be able to get an answer? Uh, that's probably part of it, because in general they think uh, things are difficult to get answers on, uh, quite frankly, when it comes to government, and I think that's uh, been been that way for a long, long time. I mean, people feel sometimes that it's difficult, uh, but because it's a, a interprovincial border, uh, it does have the three levels of government who sit on that uh, or form part of that board. So we need their cooperation in order to uh, proceed with that independent review. You know, Minister, uh, what might help people get answers if you it would be if you gave out your cell phone. <laughs> some some people do have my cell phone. You may have my cell phone. I, I'm not sure if I've ever given. Well, it you want to give it? You want to give it out on the air? I don't see I, what could go wrong. No, I don't think I don't think I will. <laughs> give up my cell phone. But uh, look, at uh, I know that uh, my boss has been extremely accessible to the public, and uh, 
and uh, unfortunately, that becomes a challenge when uh, some some people tend to uh, tend to overuse that privilege. Let's put it that way. Um, this is Ontario Minister of Natural Resources, John Yakubuski. Thank you so much for being with us, Minister. My pleasure. Have a good one. Let's take you north of the city now to York Region and an incredible bust of organized crime announced by York Regional Police. 48 search warrants executed earlier this month on dozens of businesses and residents across the GTA that has led to the seizure of luxury homes, cars, jewelry, cash, and more. 15 people arrested in Ontario, nine of whom are according to police, key players in an alleged crime ring. Twelve also arrested in Italy. Mark Carcassole is a reporter for Global News and has been covering this story, has been at this incredible news conference this morning. Hi, Mark. Hey, Alan. What is the takeaway from all of this? It's... uh... I don't even know where to start. It's such a huge bust. It's so big that York Regional Police, which is a force that's been around for quite a while now, are saying this is their largest traditional organized crime takedown uh, in the history of the force. You gave the numbers of those arrested there. Uh, among the nine members of the uh, crime family that operates here in uh, in the Vaughan area, specifically in Woodbridge, the Filiomeni crime family, uh, nine of those arrested are high-ranking players in that family. There is one still outstanding that police say they have been in touch with and whom they expect will eventually turn himself over, so that will make that total 10. But just over $30 million worth of seizures. There's a table here set up at the news conference where it showed just a few of the things that were seized. Stacks of cash, uh, Rolex watches, some of them, each individual watch worth more than $30,000. Big bottles and fancy display cases of top-shelf liquors, some of these worth thousands of dollars themselves. And as you mentioned, that, that's just the small stuff when you compare it to the upscale homes that were seized. The sports cars, five Ferraris, including one that was worth $880,000 alone. Uh, these are all proceeds of organized crime, according to police. Much of this coming from illegal gaming houses that they say the suspects here were running. Uh, they made a lot of their money not just from people gaming, uh, gambling at these houses, but they would also... Uh, people who were essentially addicted to gambling, they would offer them extremely high interest loans uh, that if they didn't pay back, they would enforce those loans through acts of violence against people and property. And it was those acts of violence that actually touched off this investigation. York Regional Police saw that there was an uptick in violence, uh, which they thought was related to organized crime. They launched into this investigation and came out with this. The interesting thing about this investigation is that they didn't necessarily go after so many of the of the grunts who do a lot of the dirty work they went after the numbers so they went after banking records they did math money always leaves a trail they say by doing this it allowed them to target sort of the higher end operators of the family and they didn't have to worry about having witnesses who were afraid to testify because they say that math and sheer numbers and trails and paperwork don't lie so that's going to be a large part of the evidence that'll be used in court when all of these suspects eventually go to trial If you want to see what Mark is talking about, this incredible haul of bling, you can see it on our Instagram account at AM640 and see what uh, Mark is talking about. And Mark, as I read through your tweets as you were tweeting, uh, live tweeting the account uh, from the police, I, 
I meant I, I noticed you said that there was money laundering in casinos. Is that in legitimate casinos? Is that what police are alleging? Yeah, that is legitimate casinos, Alan. And I asked them, can you tell us which casinos? And basically their answer in short was all of them. Uh, any casino that is, you know, sort of within Ontario, uh, they allege that the suspects would go to. Uh, they saw it sort of as a tax on their business where they would take this dirty money, bring it to casinos, cash it in essentially for for chips gamble and you know come out with still when you think about the amount of money that was made here they would still come out with significant amounts of money they would lose obviously some of it but they would come out with amounts of clean money that were just off the charts and that is why many of these houses and cars and fancy liquor bottles were were afforded uh one interesting note in this investigation that i forgot to mention off the top was they also shared a lot of information with authorities in the Italian state police. And they say that the information that they shared with police uh, eventually led to several arrests. I believe the number was 12 arrests in Italy uh, in relation to a high-profile homicide case there. So this is a multi-jurisdictional operation. Mark, what do we know about the people arrested here in Vaughan and York Region? Uh, most of them, well, one of them is the boss of the Filiomeni crime family, uh, sort of the uh, the head of the snake, if you will. Uh, this is a family that is connected to the Andrangheta uh, crime family, which is uh, very notorious in Italy for a violent crime, uh, basically anything that organized crime can get involved in. Uh, there's also uh, um, uh, another gentleman by the name of uh, Salvatore. Um, his, name, his, name, his last name escapes me right now. Olivetti, Salvatore Olivetti. Uh, who uh, runs a company called Option B Financial here in Vaughan, uh, which they say a significant amount of money was also laundered through. They say a lot of money was laundered through charities, too, and Salvatore Olivetti uh, is actually the figure behind a charity ride that took place across Ontario uh, just within the last couple of weeks, raising money for sick kids. Now, I spoke to York Regional Police about that specific charity, as they did mention that some of the money was laundered through charities, as far as they know, none of the evidence suggests that any of the money was used or there was, you know, there was no illegal uh, dealings in relation to the ride for sick kids. But uh, it just goes to show you that there are some very high-profile members of the community allegedly involved in this. Mark Carcassol is a Global News reporter. and is covering this incredible story that is developing today in York Region. Thanks, Mark, for being with us. Thanks, Alan. And you can watch Mark's report tonight on Global News. I also mentioned that the video that uh, of the actual haul of all of those watches and so on and so forth can be seen on our Instagram page, AM640. And I just quickly want to note two stories that will come out of this. And one will be the use of casinos to launder money, because this is not the first time we have heard of this. It is a big problem in British Columbia. You may have heard of that and the crackdown in that province, and how much of that money actually went in to the housing market and then drove up the cost of housing. And that leads me to my next segment, which is how much it costs to rent in this country. You don't think that that is impacted by this illegal money going into the system? And, of course, the other quick question that I think will linger in this story is the possible use of charities as a way to launder illegal money. When we come back, we're going to talk more about that report about rent, and also we're going to look at where are the cheapest areas in the city of Toronto to actually be able to rent. That is coming up on the Alan Carter Radio Program. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
A new analysis of the country's rental market suggested a minimum wage worker could afford to rent in only a few neighborhoods nationwide. This report, released today from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the author was on this radio station earlier this morning talking about some of the neighborhoods that are cheaper but just not cheap enough. When we break it down to neighborhoods, so there's 117 different neighborhoods in the GTA. People think, well, you know, there's got to be some neighborhoods where it's a little bit cheaper, and therefore, you know, if you don't make a lot, you live there. Uh, and that's not the case either. Um, so certainly it's less expensive in places like Scarborough, but even most of Scarborough, uh, the rental wage is $25, $26 an hour to afford um, a two-bedroom apartment or 20 to $22 an hour to afford a one-bedroom apartment. That is study author David McDonald from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives on his report saying how much it costs to be able to rent a one-bedroom apartment nationwide and also here in Toronto. Rubia Ahmed Haq is 640 Toronto's personal finance expert and joins me on the line. Hi, Rubina. Hi, Alan. Were you shocked by this number? No, not at all. I mean, it's really interesting to see it broken down city by city, uh, but I'm not surprised that that this data is showing that the majority of Torontonians who are getting into a new mortgage or renting a home here in the city are spending, you know, upwards of 50-60% of their income in order to afford it or they're doing a lot of creative things like living with other people, living with their parents, just making ends meet, they have to go outside of what we would normally consider, you know, just a young person living in the city, uh, what their situation would be like. They have to think more creatively now. Uh, On some metrics, people would see this as a sign of success for a city, rising rates, uh, more expensive, more people want to come here. But on the flip side, this has an extremely detrimental effect on the livability of our city. Well, the one thing great about Toronto is that if you do work in Toronto, your access to well-paying jobs or good-paying jobs is much higher than you would have in, say, Windsor or Sarnia or places in in Saskatchewan. I mean, people come to big cities like Toronto so they can get the jobs with the big bucks. And this, of course, like you mentioned, is, is... you know, a reflection in the rents that people can afford to pay. The problem is, is that, you know, even this report shows is that one in four Canadians are making minimum wage. And we know in Toronto that there is this problem of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. So the people who are at the poorest end of the income uh, spectrum are continuing to be more and more marginalized, continuing to have to find, you know, places like he mentioned in Scarborough, but even beyond, uh, far away from where they work, far away from where their family is, or, like I mentioned, like finding creative solutions, living with many other people just so they can have a place to lay their head down at the end of the night. What is the key takeaway from this? And I note where it comes from, and that is the uh, the rather left-leaning policy for Center, our Center for our Policy Alternatives, pardon me. And I wonder how much of a political spin you might, from a financial perspective, see in there, if at all. Well, I do think data is data. So I know I'm well aware sometimes that, you know, groups like this will come out with um, 
press releases that very much have a spin on it that show that we're not doing as well as we thought we did or the rich are taking too much money or we need to pay more taxes. But this is sort of really breaks it down by city, by data that they gather through completely legitimate sources. So what this really tells me is that what is going to happen is that those young people, especially who are graduating with tons of debt, and in some cases, the average debt is $25,000, but in some cases, if you have a professional degree, like a doctorate, or, or you're becoming an engineer, or you're getting your MBA, it's tens of thousands of dollars more, that they, these talented young people will, won't be able to afford to live in the city. And so they'll have two choices. One, you know, suffer through a long commute, which many people just don't want to. There was a study out a while ago, you know, young people saying commute is like the one thing they are not willing to sacrifice. They don't want to move further out of the city. Or they're just going to decide to live in Guelph or move to another city and take their talents there, which isn't a bad thing because Canada needs talented people across the country. But that will be the reality. And that's sort of what we saw in the 70s where, you know, when home prices started getting more expensive in the early 80s, people started moving out to the outskirts. And that's when Mississaugas and Scarboroughs and all these places started to get more populated. Rubina Ahmed-Huck is uh, the personal finance expert here on 640 Toronto. Uh, and how are my investments doing? I know you take care of all of them. Well, I mean, I'm not an investment advisor, what? but Alan, I get this distinct Wait a minute, I give you feeling. all my money. I give you all I my cash. I get this feeling that you are very conservative in your investments. And so if you are, I think you're doing well. I mean, most people who are a little bit more on the conservative side tend to do a little bit better than those who are, you know, just constantly day trading and trying to make a quick buck. It's not a left versus right sort of thing. All right, thank you. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, Thank you, Rubina. Appreciate in the it. Sense of you like to save money. Yeah, exactly. You, you you're calling me cheap, and I like it. Space was the final frontier fifty years ago today. Fifty years ago today, Apollo Eleven was getting ready to make history with the first man to walk on the moon. All week, we have been talking about. What happened during that time and looking back on it, understanding what it meant and where we are now. Tom Vassos joins me now live in studio. Tom is an expert on all things uh, extraterrestrial, perhaps I shall say, Tom. Sure. Where would we be exactly 50 years ago today on the mission? Well, exactly 50 years ago, the actual lander would have almost landed on the moon. And tonight at 1036... Neil Armstrong put his first steps on the moon. Did you watch that live? I did. I was 11 years old. I was in Scarborough. I looked up into the sky, and I was shaking my head in disbelief. And there it was for the whole world to watch. And since then, it seems incredible the amount of technology that we have developed, and yet we have not bested that at all. Yeah, I mean, even the actual Saturn V rocket is still the most powerful rocket ever built by humankind, and that was 50 years ago. And so even with the latest from SpaceX, etc., they still haven't bested the kind of power that was needed to have that liftoff to get to the moon. What is the lasting legacy of the moon mission? I would say the biggest lasting legacy was just inspiring an entire generation to get excited about science and technology and engineering. Like it literally got a whole generation saying, hey, I want to be an astronaut versus this morning. Some research results just came out in the U.S. and the U.K. Out of five different job titles, kids say astronaut is the last thing they want to do. 
Chinese kids, on the other hand, say it's the first thing they want to do. So they seem to be excited about STEM and technology and things like that. And we have we have just lost it. In fact, one of the job titles kids would rather do is, is be a YouTuber. Exactly. YouTuber. I knew and it. And so saw we're that shaking coming. our head thinking, what has happened to the generation? So that was the legacy, but now have we lost it? And how are we going to regain that? Do you think that when we look back on this, I mean, I, I just love looking at the footage. I especially love looking at the footage of the people all crowded around the TV stores and just watching the communal televisions, which were in stores that sold TVs. Yeah, I mean, two-thirds of a billion people, almost 20% of the population watching this thing. I mean, talk about capturing the imagination of an entire planet. It's really something that brought us all together. All right, let's do uh, let's do this. Let's do a little bit of Apollo 11 trivia. Here we go. I take this for now from the Orlando Sentinel. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in the lunar capsule. Who stayed behind in the orbiter? Was it James Lovell, Michael Collins, Elon Musk, or William Shatner? Michael Collins, but Elon wishes it was him. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Collins is indeed the answer. Next question. What did Buzz Aldrin do shortly after the lunar module landed? Recite two lines from the ancient Greek play about Selene, the goddess of the moon, peel Armstrong's hands off the steering wheel, take communion, or celebrate with a big glass of tang. I'm guessing the first one you said, but I could be wrong. Aldrin brought a small communion kit with him, but did not read the Bible verses out loud because of a lawsuit a woman had filed after Apollo 8 astronauts read verses during their mission. As for Tang, Aldrin revealed years later, he hated the stuff. (laughs) Question, what did the astronauts eat when they were on the moon? Beef stew, grilled tuna, bacon squares, or chicken wings? I'll go with bacon squares. They had two meal options, with the main dishes being bacon squares and beef stew. Bit of a trick question there. All right, let's see. we got two more. Question. Uh, what went wrong when Aldrin exited the space capsule? He slammed the hatch and startled Armstrong. His spacesuit's internal urine collection system broke. His earpieces went out. He temporarily lost communication with mission control, or he forgot his cigarettes. Earpiece out. I was going to say forgot his keys inside, but no. (laughs) Aldrin landed so hard that when he jumped from the capsule, it broke a tube in the urine collection system. When he relieved himself, his boot filled with pee. He opted not to relay that information to mission control. Wow. Our final question. How small was Armstrong's actual one small step for man? Six inches? One foot? Three and a half feet or seven feet? They miscalculated how much they were going to sink in. So I think it was a little on the high side. I'm going to go with the three-footer. the three footer. Exactly. Yeah. The small step, three and a half feet, a bit farther than planned. The problem was Armstrong landed the capsule so softly, the shock observers did not compress, so we actually had to make a pretty good leap down to the moon's surface. Fantastic. Now, here's another trivia piece for you. Buzz Aldrin, when they got back into the lander and they were going to sleep on the moon for s- and rest for seven hours, but before taking off, he actually 
broke off a circuit breaker that was supposed to arm the main engine for liftoff from the moon, and they actually used a felt-tip pin to activate the switch. So there you go. <laughs> they made it home safe. Just because, uh, you know, in pen we trust. <laughs> right. That old Simpsons bit. Uh, so, uh, thank you so much, Tom. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Don't call me like this anymore.